as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, as we're coming into your presence, we know that you've spoken to us through your word. The entire scope of Genesis through Revelation is yours. Past, present, future, all aspects of life, the things that matter most are communicated to us in your word. You stand in awe that you stand outside of time, and yet in your grace you speak into time in timely ways and allow to see everything in its proper perspective. There are people that come here in one of these services today who've got incredible weights on the shoulders. For some it's sin, it's an ongoing battle. They're wondering where, where is the victory to be found? But it's found in you. For you and you alone are the overcomer. While that's the ultimate issue, there are those that are going to be wrestling with family matters, with medical issues, those that are weighed down by, by job issues. And Father, you understand each and every issue that's here, and you give clarity in the midst of our confusion. There are the issues globally, there are the stressors nationally, there are the dynamics relationally, regionally, that all have to be addressed. But we start with you. So, Father, in these minutes you give us to be together as we now reflect upon these last verses of First Epistle of John. Again, what we're asking is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills, because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in Scotland where a young pastor had made his way into the office of Thomas Carlyle, a well-known and highly gifted philosopher in that day and age. And after Carlisle and the young pastor had been visiting for a few minutes, the young pastor posed a question that has always weighed on my own heart and my own mind. The young pastor asked Carlisle, what do you think this church needs most? And Carlisle, without hesitation, looked at the young pastor and replied, what this church needs most is a man who knows God otherwise than by hearsay. One of the great dangers in Christian circles is knowing God secondhand. Or we know him only because we've heard about him from our parents. We know about him because we've heard about him in our worship services. But we've got to drop the word about somewhere along the way. Instead of saying knowing about God, we've got to start talking about knowing God. Because at that point, we have shifted into a higher gear and gone beyond the informational stage into the personal relationship that's meant to be had relating you 
and God to one another? Do you live by hearsay when it comes to knowing God, or do you know him personally? Not once, not twice, but now three times in these verses, you and I are going to be introduced to a statement, we know that. Carries with it the idea of certainty. Gives you a sense of security. He, in fact, goes beyond the we believe. He goes to the very core, we know that. And in a society such as ours that questions how can you possibly have such certainty, the sovereign God who speaks with certainty gives us certainty not on the basis of what we believe. We believe on the basis of what God has said. And there's where the certainty is found. So what I want to do with you now is to draw out three significant certainties that are found here in these verses that relate to modern-day living. The first certainty is found in verse 18. We're going to read it. We know that everyone who has been, what, born of God does not keep on sinning. Notice the phrase, keep on. But he who is born of God, you see, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Let's begin to break this down. It begins with, we know that. It goes far beyond, we assume, we have heard, we hope. No, now you've got this sense of certitude that's being pressed into the everyday life. We know that everyone who has been born of God, and you pause and you stop right there, and you ask yourself some highly personal questions at this point. Am I religiously aware, or am I truly born of God? Now, this was the issue that the Apostle John has brought it out both in his gospel as well as in his epistle. It's called a perfect participle here. The phrase, everyone who has been born of God, carries with it the idea of a continuing result. In other words, if you've come to that definitive point in life where you've repented of sin and put faith exclusively in Jesus Christ, there is this ongoing, not temporal, but ongoing, continual experience that you have where you have not merely known God by hearsay, but rather personally. This is why we have repeated what the writer John has drawn out for us in his gospel as he links it to his epistle, where again Nicodemus and Jesus are in that deep, rich conversation when Jesus all of a sudden breaks into the thought processes of a man who supposedly knew his testament, his Old Testament, and furthermore had even taught from the scriptures to the people of Israel, and Jesus said, truly, truly, not once, twice, to capture the attention, I say to you, he doesn't say, people say, notice the authority here, I say to you, now notice the next phrase, and it's an exclusive, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Now, Nicodemus was responsible for understanding what Ezekiel chapter 36 said with regard to that, because he had his Older Testament. And the Older Testament speaks of the idea of the new birth. In the last couple of weeks, I was asked to go out to lunch with a pastor in Wisconsin. And right at the end of the conversation, he said, I got a question for you. I said, fire away. And he said, how does Ezekiel 36 relate to John 3? And I said, let's look very carefully and notice how God spoke to Nicodemus' heart as Jesus Christ was teaching. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God had said in 25, I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I'll cleanse you and get this. And I will give you a new heart. Now this is what God says. You can't obtain it by your good works. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. Now you begin to spot the newness of all this. And you understand better then the significance of the new birth. And why it's important to understand how this relates to your life and to mine. Michael Horton draws that out for us. He tells the story of Salvador, who was a Cuban spy. Sent by Fidel Castro's regime into the United States to be able to glean insights into our military secrets. But if you've been to Miami... You know how loyal the Cubans who have immigrated to the United States are to the United States. And the Cuban nationalists to whom Salvador was associating with incognito eventually led this spy to renounce his loyalties to Castro and his communist regime. Get this. As a result, Salvador turned himself into the United States government and the U.S. offered him asylum, protection, and a new identity. Now take that political illustration and tie it to the spiritual truths that are found here. What the Apostle John has drawn out in his Gospel of John chapter 3 and reiterates in his epistle of 1 John was that there needs to be a new beginning, a new identity. It has been newly documented. It is a new birth. And so we know, not merely we assume, this is not hearsay, we know there is certitude, there is certainty, that everyone, not some, that everyone who has been born of God, notice the has been, now you've got to ask yourself, have I had that has-been moment? Is that a past tense experience? Or is this still a fleeting issue in my own mind that I have not come to grips with as of yet? It comes when we have repented of sin, put faith exclusively in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when it reads here, we know that everyone who has been born of God, it carries with it then the idea of a combination of privileges given to us by God and responsibilities that we have before God. We know. We know that everyone 
We know that everyone who has been born of God. And then you say, but Gary, I'm getting tripped up here over this next statement here. Does not keep on sinning. And you say, if I'm being realistic about myself and relationship to God found in his word, I sin. How do I reconcile this? You're asking great questions. Here's the issue. The idea of keep on sinning here has to do with a habitual hardening. Where this habitual hardening is such that we are reaching a place where we've become increasingly hardened to this area in our own lives where we have made God exempt to that particular sphere in our own private everyday dealings with life. Is there anything there that is moving towards a hardening of the spirit? This is an issue that we've got to ask personally. Parents have got to be on the watch for this. Is there a hardening pattern that is unfolding where the person is now identifying himself or herself with a hardening pattern? How do we break this? The question is, how does God break this? The parent doesn't break it. God breaks it. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus was speaking of when he spoke to Nicodemus. There needs to be a new identity, not an identification with the sin, but identification with the Savior. This is an identity-oriented culture. People are looking for a sense of identity. And so now what we find is that highly documented God's word, we find the new birth, the new identity related in our relationship to God through the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Now, we are living between the now and the not yet. So there's this tremendous tension in the soul, back and forth, back and forth. So now look at that particular gravitational force toward that particular sin that may be pulling us away rather than drawing us to. And ask yourself, where does that fit into all this? We know. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not, in other words, continue towards this sense of a permanence and this hardening of the spirit. This word sin here is on his heart, on his soul, on his mind. We've got to think this through. But then having done that, he now adds this. There's a but. Pray this verse over the people you love. But he who was born of God protects him. And you say, Gary, how do I understand that? Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son. And so that's what's being referred to at this point. He who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. In other words, what Jesus Christ is offering you and offering me at this point is that sense of eternal assurance, and in this present world, in the conflicts we face, that sense of certainty that he's in charge. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What he's telling you, what he's telling me at this point, is that he's sovereign. Sin is not. But now notice how it reads here. You're in 1 John chapter 5, 
and verse 18, he who was born of God protects him. In other words, God protects you. Jesus Christ is your protector, and the evil one does not touch him. And you say, well, Gary, how do I understand this whole idea of the evil one does not touch him? I looked up that word, touch. It is the very same word that was used by the Apostle John in John chapter 20. When Jesus had said to Mary after he had been raised from the dead, do not cling to me. In other words, what the Apostle John is telling you and telling me at this point is that God protects you and the evil one does not and cannot cling to you. And if one is born again, that is what is being spoken of at this point. I was reading about a particular tradition, a particular tribe of Indians in the United States of years ago, where what the warriors would do when they were training their sons to be future warriors, they would reach a certain age, these sons would, and they would be sent out on a solo expedition. They would have their bow and their arrow and whatever other means of equipment they would have to survive. And this was their time of aloneness, survival. I was reading the story about a particular time in which there is this young man who is now out alone. He's feeling the fears within. All of a sudden he sees this wild animal approaching him. And as he becomes fearful, the next thing he knows, the, li- the animal is lying there dead. He turns around, and just yards from him was his father. Bow, arrow, looking out over his son. Sometimes you and I feel like we are out on solo. Solo wilderness experiences. What we do at this point, then, is to take the butt But he who is born of God, this is the second time that that phrase is used here, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. There's your first certainty. Pray that over the loved ones of your life. Here's our second certainty comes out of verse 19. Notice how it's italicized once again. We know that. We know that we are from God and the whole world at this point lies in the power of the evil one. Now you're watching the news and you're pondering everything that's happening within this world. And we're pondering this whole matter of this world that we are in. Read We know that we are from God. Does not we read, we know that we are from this world. There's your starting point. Always think through what is my starting point and understanding my relationship to everything that's going on in this world. We are from God. Now the Apostle John, he loved his upper room teachings that Jesus delivered said this in John chapter 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This was Jesus speaking. 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Which means then, you are, if you are born again, in Christ, in this world. And furthermore, Jesus has said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You are a sent one, if you are a reborn one. So now God is daily positioning you among people who need sent ones to enter into dialogues that produce a sense of curiosity in their own minds as to why is the world in the condition that it's in, and where do I fit into this confusing situation I find myself in? We know that. We are from God. He is speaking personally at this point. Notice what comes next. And the whole world, not a part of it, lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power. Now, you see the phrase, lies in the power? That was a Greek word used to describe in the day and age of a stranded vessel, a military vessel, a stranded vessel on the sands of a seashore. It was meant to be out at sea, but it's been disabled. What God is saying to you and to me, we know that we, believers, are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And you might say, well, I remember an old song from maybe my childhood. He's got the whole wide world in his hand. How do I reconcile that? Well, I'd sing it to you, but... Then again, I remember a lot, many years ago, there was this sound tech who said, I accidentally left your mic on while we were singing, and I wanted to bless the congregation, so I quickly turned your mic off. And I thanked him. He blessed me. You see, we know that we are from God, not from this world. And the whole world, not a part of it, has been, in essence, stranded like a vessel on the sand seashore, stranded in the power of the evil one. Now, you and I have got to understand, then, the significance of this, that the evil one has got a built-in strategy of the way in which he wants to operate within this world. The Apostle Paul understood that. In Ephesians chapter 2, he writes these words, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you watch this global chess match unfolding in front of your very eyes, and you're asking yourself, and what is the sovereign God doing here? And how does all that we are being told about in the news relate to what God is doing? You see, the evil one is savvy. He is crafty. He was able to deceive within the Garden of Eden. And so there are multiple pieces now on this global chessboard. 
And we've got to be able to understand is that this evil one is operative. And while the penalty of sin was paid and the power of sin is broken, the presence of sin still abides until Jesus Christ returns. So what we've got to be able to do then is to make absolutely certain that we do not overestimate the evil one, nor do we underestimate the evil one, but to see all of this in proper perspective. Out of World War II, there was this memo. There exists a real danger, one of our allied leaders wrote, that Rommel is becoming a king or a magician or a boogeyman to our troops who are talking far too much about him. He is by no means Superman, although he is highly energetic and able. And even if he were a Superman, he would still be highly undesirable that our troops should credit him with supernatural powers. And so, I wish to dispel all possible means the idea that Rommel represents something more than the ordinary. The more important thing now is to see that we do not always talk of Rommel when we mean the enemy. We must refer to the Germans or the Axis powers or the enemy and not always to be harping. Please ensure that this order is put into immediate effect and impress upon all commanders that from a psychological point of view, it is a matter of the highest importance. And this, in essence, is what the Apostle John does. As he will then bridge the epistles of John to the revelation of John and show that Jesus Christ is the final overcomer. Now, you've got your first certainty found in verse 18. You've got your second certainty. We know that found in verse 19. Now you're ready for your third certainty, and it's found in verse 20. And it begins with this phrase, and it's italicized, and we know that. There's your third, we know that. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Begin to break it down. And we know that the Son of God has come. Does not say will come at this point. Speaking of has come. We are waiting the second coming. Not the first. And we know that the Son of God has come. And we've processed over these weeks how the Apostle John has taken the Gospel of John and he has described, for example, how Jesus Christ at the time of his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I well please. The Apostle John witnessed that, ties it together to the Mount of Transfiguration where God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him, bookends that entire thing and now brings it home for you and for me we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We get it. We understand why he came. He identifies with us in humanity, dying in our place for our sins. Joseph Damien. Joseph Damien was a missionary in Hawaii 
ministered to people who suffered from leprosy. And those that were suffering leprosy grew to love him and respect the sacrificial life he laid out before them. Get this. One morning before Joseph was led, was leading them in their daily worship, he was pouring some hot water into a cup when the water swirled out fell on his bare foot. It took him a moment to realize that he had not felt any sensation. Gripped by the sudden fear of what this could mean, he poured more hot water on the same spot. No feeling whatsoever. Ravi Zacharias, in his book, In Deliver Us From Evil, tells the rest of the story. Damien immediately knew what had happened. As he walked tearfully to teach God's word, moved up onto the platform, no one at first noticed the difference in his opening statement. Normally he began each teaching with, my fellow believers. But this morning, this morning he began with, my fellow lepers. Zacharias goes on to write, in a greater measure, Jesus came into this world knowing what it would cost him. He bore in his pure being the marks of evil that we might be made pure. And then quoting from John 18, 37, For this I came into the world, Jesus said. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. The light comes on in the midst of the darkness of the mind so that we may know him who is true. Circle that word true. And we know and we are in him who is true. Circle that word true. In his son, Jesus Christ. Why is that word true so significant? There are two words here in your Newer Testament for truth. One is alethes. The other is aletheinas. Sounds similar, don't they? The word aletheinas, however, carries with it the idea of the genuine. This is the word that the Apostle John is using at this point. It was the very same word he utilized in that story in John chapter 6, when Jesus Christ was teaching after he had, after he had broken bread and multiplied it, Jesus said to the, to the multitudes, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread. In other words, genuine bread. He is saying, I'm the real thing. Try it again. Throughout Israel, Anytime they neared the temple, emblazoned upon the temple was the symbol of the vine. A reminder of the time when the spies of the Old Testament time period brought vines of grapes back to show the people the richness of the land. In John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine. 
the alethanos vine. In other words, I'm the real thing. Now, people are looking for the real thing. They're looking for real reality. You bring it to them. They have this sense that you've got security, that you speak with certainty. And we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding. We develop this week by week, growing in our understanding of God found in His Word. Why? so that we may know him who is genuine. And we are in him who is true, genuine, in where his son, Jesus Christ. He is the genuine one, the true God, and eternal life. And you read that. And you say, well, Gary, well then, what's verse 21 all about? Is this a tack on? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. When all of a sudden, the light goes on. The idols are not genuine. The idols are the counterfeits. And so now what we're doing, if you pray over your loved ones, you are praying that God, you will keep my loved ones from the counterfeits. And what are counterfeits? Competitors for the loyalty, competitors regarding the lordship of Jesus Christ. There are other substitutes for Christ, or they are supplements to Christ. Both are forms of idolatry. So now you ask yourself, and what are the competitors when it comes to heartfelt, total, complete loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ? And you pray over that matter. And you pray that God will break into that matter and clarify what's real and what's phony, what's real and what's artificial. And you are praying both with regard to the substitutes and the supplements in relationship to Jesus Christ. Because there was only one who was substitutionary when he went to the cross and died in our place for our sins. And now you have it. Not once. Not twice. Three times. He says, we know that. And a young pastor asks Carlisle, what do you think this church needs most? And Carlisle responds, what this church needs is a man who knows God otherwise than by hearsay. Question. Do you know him by hearsay? Or do you know him personally? Thank you for studying First John with me. Let's stand together. So we thank you, Father, for each and every word found in this entire epistle. Thank you for the certainties, not the possibilities, not the probabilities, the certainties that we have that are found in the fact that Jesus died for our sins 
and on the third day was raised from the dead. If there's anyone in any of these services, Father, in the comings and goings of this summer season, does not know Jesus Christ personally, pray now that he or she will repent of sin and put faith exclusively in Jesus Christ and come to know you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.